Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life, and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now... Let's join our service. Okay, I I need you to do a favor for me. Uh, Here in the room and wherever you are watching online, I'd like you to just give me an ah, but not just any kind of ah, but the kind that you would give me after you watch this cute little kitten try to jump up on the counter. Okay, now you see what I mean. So, okay now, so give me an ah. Very good. Uh, Next up, next up, give me a Chris just told a funny joke and it landed kind of laugh. Okay, that was closer to a Chris told a dad joke kind of laugh. I believe you can do better than that. So let's try that again. Okay, last, give me a good old Southern amen. Amen. Okay, let's try them all together. First up, we have the. And then the. And last. Great job. We have a lot going on in this service, but I don't want to shortchange the Word of God. So normally I'd start this message with a cute little story that makes you go, or something funny that makes you laugh as you turn to the person next to you and say, he's so funny, (laughs) or makes you holler, but we don't have time for that today. So (laughs) consider yourself ready to dive into God's Word. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, ah, what, a, what a great moment to be here. 
celebrating 30 years, not 30 years of anything that any one of us have done, but 30 years of something you have done. Uh, The history of our church is living proof that you take messy people who do messy church and when they surrender themselves to you and work to become more like Jesus, you clean them up. You do great things in us before you ever do great things through us. So Father, thank you for the work that you are doing in us. What a great thing to celebrate, to celebrate the glory and the majesty of a God who loves us so much that he doesn't leave us messy, although he invites us messy, accepts us messy, loves us messy, and then takes us on a journey. So thank you that you've called us all to that journey. And now, Father, help us to lay all of that aside because we want, we want to learn today. We want, we want to grow today. We want you to speak to us today as we dive into your word. So do what you need to do in us right now so that we can hear your voice. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. We are working our way through the gospel of John. Unless this is your first exposure to church uh, and the Gospel of John, uh, by now we all know that the book of John was written by the disciple John, who was first a disciple of John the Baptist before joining Jesus in his ministry. Now at the point that John wrote this account of Jesus' life and ministry, it was about 100 AD. Uh, John was likely the only eyewitness still living to these events. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written years earlier by none other than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and had been circulating in the church in what was known as the way for years. Now, as we've learned, they were written for specific audiences for specific purposes. Each of them focused on the events of Jesus' life and ministry. John, on the other hand, focused on the meaning behind the events in Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, John didn't want us to miss that the miracles of Jesus were more than just spectacular displays of awesomeness. Jesus was incredibly intentional everywhere he went, in every interaction. Each miracle was performed for a purpose. And in John's mind, that purpose was to prove Jesus' own claim that he wasn't just a man, wasn't just a miracle worker, wasn't just a prophet. He was, in fact, the Son of God, fully human, who was also fully God. God himself who came to earth incarnate, which simply means in flesh and blood, to bridge the gap between God and man caused by sin. He came to make a way where we could make no way for us to have a relationship with a God who loved us enough to create us in his own image. And if that claim made by Jesus was true, then it should change everything. If that claim is true, then John wanted to believe it, wanted us to believe it with our lives. Now, last week, 
Our John, Pastor John, taught us that the opposite of belief isn't disbelief. Now let your mind settle on that for a moment. The opposite of belief isn't disbelief, it's disobedience. Uh, To believe from disciple John's point of view isn't just head knowledge, it must move us to action. And in this case, believing in Jesus requires us to surrender our lives in obedience to him as the evidence of our belief. Now to help us do that, John presents us with the evidence that proves what Jesus says about himself. We're pretty linear people. We experience time in a linear fashion. There is yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Time moves in one straight line. The Gospels of Mark and Luke tell their stories of Jesus linearly or chronologically. Basically, his story on earth from in order, from start to finish. Matthew tells his story of Jesus topically. Remember that he was writing to convince the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He connects the events of Jesus' life and ministry to Old Testament prophecies. But is it really telling the story of Jesus from beginning to end, although it is pretty close? He just pulls out snippets that connect with the Old Testament. John's gospel is like Matthew's in that way. He isn't telling us the chronological story of Jesus. He is building a case to prove that Jesus was fully God. He too pulls out specific moments to support his case, which can be a little confusing if you don't understand that. But now you do which will help you as you work through chapters five and six on your own in this coming week. There's way too much good stuff in there for us to get through it all today. But we're going to start right at the top of chapter five. So go ahead and turn or navigate to uh, to John chapter five in your Bibles. There John begins, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Now, because John wasn't writing chronologically, we don't know how long it was between the end of chapter four and this moment. It could have been several weeks or even months, and John doesn't tell us which Jewish festival Jesus was returning to Jerusalem to celebrate. Traditionally, the Jews celebrate seven festivals each year. Three of those festivals, Passover, the Festival of Weeks, or we know it better as Pentecost, and the, festi- the Feast of Tabernacles, or tents or booths, depending on your translation, uh, required, those three required that Jews living outside of Jerusalem make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to participate in the festival. Being the perfect sacrifice for our sins meant that Jesus would have to follow all 613 Old Testament laws. One of them required this pilgrimage, which is why we find Jesus interrupting his ministry in Galilee for this moment in Jerusalem. Verse 2, inside the city near the sheep gate was was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Now, I don't think that any of us have ever been to ancient Jerusalem, although Michelle is pretty close. I mean, some of you are pretty old, but maybe not that old. In modern Jerusalem, the Sheep Gate 
is located in the Muslim quarter of what they call Jerusalem's old city and is now called St. Stephen's Gate or Lion's Gate. Uh, in the time of Jesus, it was called Sheep Gate because it was the gate they used to bring sheep into the temple for the sacrifices. The pools of Bethesda are ruins now, but were located about 150 feet inside of the Sheep Gate. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, lay on the porches. Now, this is what we might think of as a sanitarium, and sick people with every kind of infirmity found their home here. Uh, if you are following along in your Bible, I want you to note something. We're also going to put it on the screen so that you can see it. In many of our modern translations, you'll see what we see here. There is no verse four. The New American Standard Bible has verse four in brackets. Some translations have a footnote at the end of verse three. Verse four does not appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts of John. And as Bible scholars have found more and earlier original documents, they've updated our modern translations. But use this method of verse skipping to let us know that there are some questions. Uh, there are a couple of other places in the New Testament where you can see this. Most likely, an early scribe added verse 4 as a clarification based on his knowledge of the tradition about the pools of Bethesda. But while that means we shouldn't read verse 4 as gospel, it doesn't mean that it isn't helpful to our understanding of what's going on here. Uh, verse 4 reads that these blind, lame, or paralyzed people are waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. The, then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. The name Bethesda is a play on words. It can mean house of grace or house of outpouring, meaning water. Uh, the superstition held that the angel of God periodically stirred up the waters and promised healing to the first invalid able to get into the pool. We now know that the pools were fed by an underground spring that periodically caused the surface to stir. Hindsight is 2020. None of the commentaries commented on this, so this is just Pastor Chris thinking through the situation, but that there were crowds of people waiting to be healed tells me that either this stirring didn't happen very often or it often didn't work. Uh, if it worked all the time, you'd think that over time there would no longer be crowds of people waiting to be healed. And by the way, just because we now know that the springs caused the surface to stir doesn't mean that God didn't actually send an angel to do the work. Bubbling underground springs doesn't explain people being healed. And there must have been enough people healed over time for this superstition to work its way into popular culture. Otherwise, why would a man wait around for 38 years for nothing? But out of all of the people in the crowd, that's who Jesus singled out, which is in and of itself interesting. He didn't heal everyone. In fact, he healed only one. Now, this whole scene is symbolic of the legalism that the Jews had wrapped around their religion, which we're, we're going to see played out in the verses to come. 
Uh, many of us grew up in legalistic religious traditions, so we know firsthand what legalism is. But to make sure that we're all on the same page, legalism is righteousness as defined by humans, but attributed to God as the source of the standard. So, for example, legalism says that what you wear to church is important to God. Holy genes aren't righteous. In the old days, pants on women did not a righteous woman make. Dancing was bad. Never mind that King David danced. Uh, you couldn't be a Christian if you smoked or drank. Tattoos weren't, uh, weren't righteous. Uh, these are just some of the more common man-made legalistic rules of old. Although, let's be honest, they still persist in some churches today. Not this one, but some others. These legalistic rules have certainly damaged lots of people, but they weren't or aren't the only legalistic rules or maybe even the most damaging ones. Uh, basically, legalism is a human expectation put on another human or oneself, but wrapped up in the bow of righteousness. Legalism promises that if you do the right things, you will become the righteous kind of person that God favors. And as a result, everything in your life will be peachy keen. But if you don't do these right things, then God won't bless your life. Legalism presumes that we can earn God's favor. What legalism actually produces in people are the kinds of things that God likes the least. Pride, self-loathing, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. So here at Bethesda, the promise is that if you do the right thing by getting into the pool at the right time, then you will earn the favor of God's healing. Again, symbolic of legalism, but it sets up what will happen in the verses to come. Verse 5. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always gets there ahead of me. Now, you'd think that the man would be like, ooh, pick me. But one of the commentaries suggests that this sick, this sick man gave Jesus a crotchety old man kind of response. Like he couldn't believe that someone would ask such a stupid question. Nevertheless, Verse 8, Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, there are some Christian denominations who believe that if you just have enough faith, you will be healed, uh, which is another form of legalism. This man didn't exhibit any faith at all. In fact, just a few verses later, when Jesus meets up with the now healed man again, Jesus implies that his paralysis was caused by his own sin. Jesus tells him to go and sin no more. Now, we know that it isn't always true that our sicknesses are caused by sin, but in this one case, it seems to be true. We have an old, angry man who is broken and helpless. He's done nothing to deserve the grace that Jesus offers. He doesn't even know who healed him until later, but he still receives full, unqualified healing with no evidence that it changed his heart. It is possible to experience a miracle 
and still not be saved or go to heaven. It is possible to experience a miracle and miss God's purpose for the grace of the miracle that he's given you. Jesus' response to grandpa, that's my attitude, not Jesus, stands in stark contrast to the symbolic legalism of this setting. Verse 9, instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But, now you might want to circle this but. It is foreshadowing that someone is going to get all butt hurt and act like a butt in just a moment. (laughs) But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So this man does what Jesus says to do. He picks up his mat and leaves only to be caught carrying his mat by the Pharisees, who, by the way, would never be caught dead where Jesus was. Uh, Of course, the Pharisees get their noses out of joint. This man is breaking the rules of Sabbath, and Jesus, by healing him, is breaking the rules of Sabbath. Or is he? Remember just a few minutes ago, I told you that in order to be the perfect sacrifice, Jesus had to obey 100% of the 613 laws of the Old Testament. One of those laws found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, uh, commanded people to stop all work on the Sabbath. Uh, During creation, God ceased work after the sixth day because his work was complete, not because he needed rest. Uh, He set aside the seventh day as a day of rest, or Shabbat, which means to cease. It was a day set aside to remember that even though we work and earn, It is God who provides. So Sabbath is intended to be a time of rest, feasting, enjoying family, and celebrating the provision and goodness of God. But what is rest? The Pharisees had created a long list of specific prohibitions to help people enjoy rest. They had, on their own, added 39 categories of forbidden activities to the law. Carrying, burning, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, threshing, building, shearing, trapping. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. Even the simplest common sense activities were forbidden. Instead of making rest easier, it did just the opposite as legalism always does. And instead of celebrating the grace this man received, they focused on the threat to their authority. Legalists are more concerned about their rules than God's rules. And they are more concerned about their rules than about people. What's ironic is that these religious leaders would have claimed to love this man. So the Jewish leaders confront the man who later figures out who Jesus is and then calls ice and turns him into the Pharisees as his thank you to Jesus. Uh, Verse 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father, thereby making himself equal with God. Now, Sabbath 
was given to people as a day of rest from the labor of their regular employment. It was supposed to give them freedom from work. The Jewish leaders had made it a prison. Acts of mercy, like we've seen here, were allowed by the law. Acts that benefited other people fit the spirit of the law of Sabbath. To forbid them would actually be a perversion of the law. What's interesting is that Jesus could have simply clarified the purpose of the law and they would have had to agree with him. But his defense was that God was working on the Sabbath, with which they would have had to agree. God is always at work. Therefore, and don't miss this, this is so important. Therefore, since God is working on the Sabbath and I am working on the Sabbath, put two and two together. I, Jesus, am God. Now, to be clear, Jesus wasn't saying anyone can work on the Sabbath. He was just saying that he, as God, can work on the Sabbath. For Jesus' defense to be valid, all things that are true about God must also be true about Jesus. And the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Let's look at verse 17 again. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. A British theologian, George MacDonald, says that this verse gives us profound insight into the miracles of Jesus. He says, as cited by Warren Wiersbe, Jesus did instantly what the father is always doing slowly. For example, in nature, the Father is slowly turning water into wine, but Jesus did it instantly. Through the powers in nature, the Father is healing broken bodies, but Jesus healed them immediately. Nature is repeatedly multiplying bread from sowing to harvest, but Jesus multiplied it instantly in his own hands. As his Father is working, so is he. And don't miss that in this moment, Jesus claimed ownership of the Sabbath as God. He's not breaking any of those 613 laws because he owns them. Because the law came from God, God cannot be condemned by the law. Jesus was simply continuing to do what he as the creator had been doing since that seventh day of creation. Again, the Pharisees got exactly what Jesus was saying. But instead of acknowledging Jesus and stepping into grace, they chose to stay bound by legalism as they plotted to kill Jesus. Over the next 11 verses, Jesus makes six claims about himself that substantiate substantiate that he is fully God. First, in verses 19 and 20, he claims that he is equal with God. While God the Father and God the Son are distinct persons, they are equal and unified. In human form, Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father here on earth. And then in verse 21 and 26, Jesus claims that he is the giver of life. And in order to give life, you must be the source of life. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus claims that he is the final judge, that God the Father has delegated all judgment to the Son. 
Verse 24 tells us that he will determine the eternal destiny of humanity. In verses 25 to 29, Jesus claims that he will raise the dead. Now here, John uses the phrase, the dead will hear my voice. The word hear means literally and figuratively. They will physically hear his voice, but only those who comprehend his message will hear his voice. So on that day, just as Jesus told the lame man to get up, he will tell those in the grave to get up. And those under grace will receive eternal life and everyone else eternal condemnation. And then in verse 30, Jesus says that he is always doing the will of God, which should be no surprise. If he is God, he's doing his own will too. Six rather outrageous claims from the Pharisee's perspective about himself. Six claims that rounded out the fullness of God in Jesus. Six characteristics of God that were reserved for God alone. Now, we've skimmed through uh, this for the sake of time, but I want, you to go, I want to encourage you to go back over these verses in the coming week. These verses are important verses to be familiar with when we're defending theology about Jesus. Now, let's be honest. Anyone can claim anything. I can claim that I am president of the United States. I can claim that I can bench press 300 pounds. Can't you tell by looking at my guns? Anyone can claim anything. Remember that John is presenting his case to us about Jesus as God. And he is taking his cues from Jesus, who in these moments is actually presenting what would have been considered to be a legal case to the Jewish leaders. So, as in any legal court case, are there any witnesses? Turns out there are. Jesus continues in verse 31. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. But someone else is also testifying about me, and I assure you that everything he says about me is true. So Jesus opens his case by quoting a guiding principle from the Jewish court system, which finds its roots in the law of Moses. In Jewish court, the defendant can't be his only, the only witness on his behalf. You can't, basically you can't testify for yourself. You need other proof. So basically a defendant's testimony isn't considered valid unless it's supported by either undisputed fact or reliable testimony from more than one witness. Jewish courts accepted corroborating testimony from multiple witnesses as indisputable proof. So yes, there are witnesses. The first witness is John the Baptist, verse 33. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist and his testimony, testimony about me was true. Of course, I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. Now, the impact of John, John the Baptist's ministry was so profound that few people doubted uh, his status as a genuine prophet. So much so that these Jewish leaders had already looked to him in their search for the Messiah. They consulted him as their expert witness. But 
I have a greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. So while John is a powerful witness, he never performed miracles. Jesus performed many. The miracles themselves don't establish the deity of Christ. However, as Charles Swindoll writes in his commentary, miracles had long been accepted as God's stamp of approval on the miracle worker's message. Jesus' signs authenticated his message that I am equal with the Father. Furthermore, the miracles were consistent with the character and plans of God. We find the third witness in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has testified about me himself. You have heard his voice. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you. Now, this is interesting. We kind of miss this in translation. But Jesus says, God the Father is witness to this truth. Without denying his unity with God the Father, Jesus treated the Father's testimony as independent testimony. And in doing so, presents the Pharisees with a conundrum. Because Jesus can't testify on his own behalf. So if they object to this independent testimony, they're essentially admitting that Jesus and the Father are one. And if they don't object, they have to accept the independent testimony of God the Father as evidence. And in this case, because they have never seen or heard his voice, they must rely on his revelation to them, which could be found through the words of his messengers or the prophets, and as revealed through his works and through his word, which we call uh, that the Old Testament, which, by the way, most of them would have memorized completely. And incidentally, that's the fourth witness to God's word. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. The entire weight of the Old Testament stands behind Jesus' claims, behind the claims of Jesus. He fulfilled every prophecy, many of which he had no control over, such as when and where he was born. And then the final witness, Moses, the man all of them would revere as the founding father of their faith. Greater than all of the prophets, only the Messiah would ever be greater. Verse 45, yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses in whom you put your hopes. If you really believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? Now, if the Pharisees really believed what Moses wrote, they wouldn't have twisted it into a religion of works. That's never what God through Moses intended. Moses never intended the law to become an end unto itself. It was never going to be a mechanism or means of self-righteousness because no one could keep it perfectly, except Jesus, of course. The law can only condemn not justify. Moses predicted this failure and promised them a Messiah to lead them into something better. If only they had listened. If only they had followed their own law. Jesus presented 
an ironclad case by their own standards. Multiple credible witnesses verified what Jesus claimed. This verdict should have been a slam dunk. And yet they refused to believe. For them, it wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a problem of the will. Simply put, their pride got in the way. They just weren't going to be wrong. They chose to reject the evidence because they'd already decided on the outcome. Where does that leave you? Today, Jesus has presented his case to you. What evidence has weight with you? Does your intellectual argument against Jesus just mask your unwillingness to surrender control of your own life? And for those of you who follow Christ, is there still a little bit of legalism in you? Expectations that you put on yourself or others in order to please God? Are you still trying to live up to some standard on your own merits? Now, in just a moment, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to give, give it all to Jesus. But before we pray, you might notice that we only made it through chapter 5. Chapter 6 is your homework for the week. If you missed the first message in this series, uh, we've intentionally designed this series to demonstrate how we are partners in your spiritual growth. You have to own your own journey, but we're pointing you in the right direction to help, to help you out. So chapter 6 is a chapter of miracles. Remember that they aren't necessarily in chronological order. They are simply more evidence of the deity of Jesus. In, cha in particular, chapter 6 has the feeding of the 5,000. Unlike the other Gospels, uh, John follows that miracle with the why behind the miracle. In the first of seven I am statements made by Jesus and recorded by John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm a bread guy. I love bread. I don't care about the carbs. I love to eat at restaurants that give you bread while you wait for your food. I love to slather it with butter. I love to soak it in olive oil. And I'm hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> are you really hungry for the bread of life? Or are you filling up on other stuff? Be sure to spend some time sitting in that part of the passage. Let's pray. Father, in this whirlwind of time, I know that you've been speaking to each one of us. And in this room, uh, watching online, it's likely that there are people who have yet to surrender their lives to Jesus. And today they've heard his case. Jesus is worth surrendering his life to because he is God. Not just a nice man, not just a, a miracle worker or a prophet, but God himself who came to earth as flesh and blood to have a relationship with us. So if that, if that describes you this morning, maybe it's time for you to give up. And it's really easy to do that. All you have to do is say yes. Father, I believe. 
I've tried doing it on my own and I have failed miserably. So I receive Jesus and invite him to do his perfect work in me. Also in this room and watching online, probably more so than people who have yet to follow Christ, are those of us who have chosen to follow Christ. I think it's probably pretty safe to say that none of us follow Christ with 100% of our hearts. We might try, we might get close, but we're still bound up in the mess that was our lives. And coming to Jesus and receiving grace without any sort of earning of it is so different than anything else in the world. So we don't really know what that looks like most of the time, which means we try, we, 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 we put expectations on ourselves to try to, to please God, to earn your favor. So Father, teach us how to walk in grace to embrace the mess that is our lives as you clean it up. Father, do your perfect work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.